everyone. Uh, we're in our final week of this balanced series and hopefully it's been helpful to you. Uh, and as we've said throughout the series, like our desire is that all of us would have hearts surrendered to God. And, and so the, the goal of this teaching is not to get something from you, it's to provide something for you, namely good biblical instruction in this sometimes tricky area of personal finances. And it's not too late to sign up for our Financial Peace University class. It's starting this week uh, at both of our locations and next week online. And I'm just so thrilled that many of you have signed up and you're taking this very critical first step. Uh, you can visit whoisgrace.com give for more information about that class. So, so far we've talked about working and planning and giving during the first three weeks. And, and there's this fourth area that doesn't get preached on very much. Uh, but as I got to thinking about it, it really can be the fly in the ointment to the other three. It can drive your need for more working, it can derail your planning, and it can totally wipe out your giving. Uh, it's this little thing called spending. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I don't need a sermon on this. I have no problems whatsoever spending money. Exactly. Uh, in fact, usually our only problem with spending money is that most of us run out of money before we run out of things that, that we want to spend it on. Now, I don't mean to negatively prime this message from the start because think about it. Is it wrong to spend money? Of course not. Like, we need to spend money to live. It's just a part of life. But, but there's another important question for us to ask. The question is, does God care how we spend our money? Actually, let's, let's say this more correctly. Does God care how we spend his money? The money that he has given us to manage, and the answer is easy. Of course he does. Just imagine how you would feel if you gave money to someone to manage for you. You, you would care what they did with it. And so, so God has been very gracious with us. And so after percentage giving, a starting place of like 10%, like we mentioned last week, and hopefully a good savings plan, a good investment plan for your future, God has then entrusted the rest to you to spend under his generous rule. And so our big idea today is this, it's that we honor God with our faithful spending. Now, before we get to our text today uh, and some lessons, I just want to set the stage by acknowledging that this is a problem area for some people in, in, that are watching today. Spending is not just an issue, it's your issue. And the Spirit of God is going to be poking and prodding at some of you today. That's okay. That's good. But if you're sitting next to someone with a spending problem, say a spouse or a friend, please no poking or prodding from you, all right? Let the Holy Spirit do his job without any help from you, okay? And now here's some unhealthy spending uh, plans that can manifest themselves in our lives. I want to talk about some, a few kinds of unhealthy spenders. So first of all, there's the impulsive spender. These people went home two weeks ago after the budget sermon. They set up a rock-solid financial plan. They got all excited about it. But five times since then, when, when they scrolled through Amazon and saw a deal that they just couldn't pass up, they, they just bought stuff impulsively. They became quickly convinced that this is something that they can't live without. And, and, and without thinking, without considering what they're doing, that they just buy it. That's called impulsive spending. Then there's the compulsive spender. Compulsive spenders are people with an unmet need in their life. They might not even know what it is, but instead of determining what that need is and dealing with it, they do kind of a defense mechanism thing. They try to escape it all by spending money. And so they shop when they're sad, and they shop when they're lonely, and they shop when they're angry. They shop when they feel happy just to celebrate. Any emotion is an excuse to purchase stuff, when the real answer is probably some therapy. But, but it's a compulsive thing, and it eventually leads to, to bondage and not freedom. 
There's another unhealthy spender. It's the revenge spender. There are those people who feel like, you know, that they've been good all month and now it's time. Or they, they've even, they've been good their whole life and they just decide one day they're going to stop being good. And in a moment of weakness, they blow their whole savings in one just a marvelous purchase. Maybe it's somebody who's been driving the same old beater car for 10 years and they just decide one day that they get so frustrated. They're like, I'm, I'm going to take revenge on that old car by going out and buying a, a $70,000 SUV. That'll show it, you know. That's revenge spending. You can have revenge spending against people too, by the way. Then you have your boredom spender. Like some people just get bored with life and they go shopping. And this one's pretty ridiculous when you think about it. There has never in the history of our planet been so many things for us to do to entertain ourselves. And so, so I would just say like next time you're bored and, and you're tempted to shop, give the Grace Church office a call. We love people who are looking for stuff to do. Another kind of uh, uh, is a special interest spender. These are people, you know, who are pretty good with their spending in most areas of life, but then there's that one particular interest or hobby where they just kind of lose their mind. These are collectors. Maybe it's technology or shoes or cigars or antiques or jewelry or whiskey. That, that, like, they don't just have one of that thing. They need the whole collection of that thing. And when they see that thing out in the wild, it's just easy to justify buying it every time. Finally, there's the status spender. This is, this is a mentality that often starts in elementary school and it carries all the way into adulthood. It begins with an eye that is constantly looking to see what everyone else is wearing, what everyone else is listening to or watching or driving or living in. And the mentality is, I've got to keep up with everyone. And like I've said it before, but it's time for status spenders just to declare the Joneses the winners and move on with your life. Just say, you win, Joneses. I'm done trying to keep up with you. I'm conceding victory to you. Take a victory lap. You win. You win the car game. You win the house game. You win the clothes game. You win the country club membership game, the boat game, you know, the annual Christmas light contest. You win it all and just be done keeping up with the Joneses. And and so those are some unhealthy ways to spend. But, but what does it look like to spend our money in a healthy way, in a God-honoring way? You know, there's an important foundational principle here. We talked about it last week in, in the message about giving and the importance of generosity. It's the principle of ownership. So here's what you need to hear. God still owns all the money that you don't give him. You know that, right? Like, it's not like we give God this percentage and then we say, there you go, God. You know, there's your 10%. Now all the rest is mine to do whatever I please with. No, it's still all his. We're, we're still just the manager. He's the owner. Psalm 50, 10 says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Guess what that means? He, he not, only, not only owns the cattle, he owns the hills too. He owns all of it. And so you and I, we didn't bring anything into this world. We're not taking anything out of it. And God lets you borrow some of his stuff for 80 or 90 years if you're lucky. And that money that you currently have, it was managed by someone else before you were around. And when your head hits the casket, it's going to be managed by somebody else again. All that you have is a short-term loan from the King of Kings. And so we need to be consistently asking him what he wants us to do with his money. Now, to explore this idea, I want to take us uh, to an unlikely, uh, albeit famous, passage. We're going to look at Proverbs 31. And so you can turn there in your Bible or device. It's in the Old Testament, about right in the middle of the Bible as you flop it open. It's a chapter about a virtuous woman. 
And for those of you who are quick thinkers, I need to add a disclaimer here. Not even in the deep recesses of my sarcastic mind am I trying to make a statement by connecting this chapter of the Bible about a woman to my sermon on spending. I promise you, so please cut me some slack on this one. I believe that God has led us to this text because it's going to shed some light on a positive example of spending. And really, I think, some pretty fascinating insights about how this virtuous woman used the resources that God had blessed her with. And so, we're going to look at Proverbs 31, starting in verse 10. And a couple of things about this passage before uh, we dive into it. Proverbs 31 is a poem. But it's not just any old poem. It's an acrostic where each line of the poem begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so it's heavily stylized and really about as far away from a to-do list as you can possibly get. Uh, Also in the book of Proverbs, uh, the main theme of the book is this idea of wisdom. And wisdom is often personified by a woman. And so this poem is an example of wisdom. And the mistake that's often been made about, you know, by preachers and, and, and women, certainly alike, is that this chapter can be used as sort of a job description for womanhood uh, by which you must measure yourself. And while I'm sure intentions are good for, for many women, it can become yet another source of, of shame and inadequacy that's being piled onto your shoulders, essentially saying, here's another example of how you're not good enough. And I just want to make sure that we understand that the idea of this poem is to give us a creative picture of what living a life of wisdom can look like in our everyday activities and not to heap shame and guilt. As this woman keeps her household functioning by buying and trading and investing and planting and sowing and spindling and managing servants, extending charity, providing food for the family, preparing for each season, but but it's not a to-do list. It's a creative, poetic account detailing the kinds of decisions that wise people make. And so, that being said, I I confess that every time I read this list, I do think of my wife, Kim. She is such an amazing, godly woman. But, But there's something else that I want you to see here. The passage starts out with the words, a wife of noble character who can find. And this phrase, a wife of noble character, is a phrase in Hebrew that's only used two times in the whole Old Testament. I think a better translation might be a woman of valor, a woman of valor who can find. And I say this because while this example here in Proverbs 31 is of a woman who is clearly married, probably middle to upper class, I mean she has servants and she's buying vineyards for heaven's sakes, these lessons aren't reserved for that kind of person. I said the phrase here is used twice in the Old Testament. Do you know who the other person is that the Bible refers to as a woman of valor? It's Ruth. So Boaz says about Ruth, all the people of my town, he says, know that you are a woman of noble character or or a woman of valor. And so this doesn't just apply to wives. Like Ruth is not wealthy. She's not active in trade. She's not spinning wool. She's not married. and, And therefore, she's not clothing her children in scarlet. She's a childless, poor, refugee, lower class widow. And so I, I think there's a kind of a universality to the lessons here for all people, no matter where you find yourself. Now, with that in mind, I want to read the text, and we're going to be looking specifically at wise decisions regarding spending. It's not often in the Bible that we get such a detailed picture of the kinds of things people spend their money on, especially those who are held up as an example of valor. And so let's listen. Let's see what we can learn about spending from wisdom's 
wise example. Proverbs 31, starting in verse 10. It says, a wife of noble character, as I said, a woman of valor, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. And she selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Now, I'm sure you, you picked up that one of the underlying principles in this text is hard work. Hard work, I believe, is connected to our, our healthy approach to spending. In fact, there are plenty of people who, who like to spend money but don't like to work hard for it. That, that's an issue that I talked about back in week one, and if you missed it, I'd encourage you to go back and check out that message. But, but let's return to the question of the day. How should we spend God's money? And I, I see at least five things in this passage that our wise womanly mentor uh, spent money on, wise ways to spend. And so I want, I want you to look at five areas of wise spending. The first is housing and food. So, so it says here that she's like the merchant ships bringing food back to her household. Now let me just pause and say to any of you guys who are looking for romance tips from this passage or, or potential compliments to give to your lady. I mean, I, I think women received compliments differently back then. So, so can I just warn you against any time and for any reason uh, from comparing your wife to a ship <laughs> Please, don't be like, oh baby, tonight you remind me of a merchant ship. Like, that's not going to go well for you, man. So, so just as your pastor, like, the Bible's good for a lot of things, but Christian Mingle pickup lines is not one of them. But, but obviously, the, the main, one of the main ways here, and, and godly ways, to spend your money is on the basics, food and shelter. And listen, P Paul has some harsh words in the New Testament for, for, for those who don't get this concept. In 1 Timothy 5.8, he says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, and worse than that is an unbeliever. And so there's this high spending priority on food and shelter. Provide for your family. Next we see, the second way, is investing. It says she considers a field and buys it. She plants a vineyard. She sees that her trading is profitable. What's she doing? She's investing. She's investing in real estate. She's investing in trades. Wise people invest in, 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 in important things. And, and investing is when you put your money to work. Now again, this takes planning. It takes intentionality up front to be setting aside resources for investing. Joe Sengel said that investments are like oxen, he called them, which is a reference to this passage in Proverbs 14 that says, where there are no oxen, the manger is empty, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. So the idea is that the farmer knows that it's impossible to reap a great harvest without some oxen. And, and so he's defining oxen as any resource that enables people to accomplish far more than they could just on their own. 
So financially, some of the types of oxen that people can own or leverage are things like stocks or bonds or mutual funds or 401ks or, or other retirement accounts or real estate or rental properties, savings accounts, some cottage industry that you're producing from your home or someone else's small business that you invest in or precious metals. Right? There, there are all kinds of different ways to invest and to put your money to work beyond just the income that you're earning at your job. Now, listen. I've seen enough terrible investments by people to know that it's important to really seek out some good expert counsel before you enter into some investment scheme. But a wise and biblical way to spend some of your money from this example in Proverbs 31 is to invest some of it. I was talking to a friend a couple weeks ago at, at Grace Harbor Creek, and he, he referred to this as, as playing offense and not just defense with your money. And he confessed, he said, I've been really good at defense, like not getting into debt, not making stupid purchases, not squandering my money. But, but he said, I wish that I had, I had some better uh, offense earlier in my life. And playing offense is when you're putting your money to work in ways that will pay dividends down the road. The third area of spending is on utilities and necessities. Look at what verse 18 says. It says that she makes sure that her lamp does not go out at night. So, so in our day, these are things like gas, electric, water, trash, internet, phone, insurances. It's been fascinating to me to see as our kids are entering the real world uh, that they start adding up all the additional expenses of like having your own home, having your own car. And like for those of you that are just starting out with all this, these things feel like hidden costs ones that you don't naturally think about until they start kind of rolling in. And so wise people spend money. They, they account for things like utilities and other necessities in life. The, the, the fourth area of spending is sharing with those in need. Notice in verse 20, it says that those who are wise with their money will open their arms to the poor and, and the needy. Last week, I talked a lot about the importance of, of awareness that as we become aware of the needs around us, it will help our generosity levels to go up. Matthew 25, 37 reminds us of the powerful truth that Jesus is present with those who are, who are suffering. And when we serve those who are suffering and when we give to them, that we're actually serving and giving to Jesus himself. Jesus said it this way. He says, the, the people ask, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, says Jesus, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. A French pastor during World War II was asked why he, he inspired an entire French village to risk giving shelter to, to Jews who were on the run. And he replied simply, I could not bear to be separated from Jesus. See, we must be sure that, that we are spending money on kingdom needs. So we see one final area of wise spending from this text in verse, verses 21 and 22. And I, I would just summarize it by saying personal items and clothing. Like she said, her, her family is well clothed. Her house is well furnished and decorated. I mean, she has some nice stuff. She talks about scarlet and fine linen and purple and coverings for the beds. Like these are all expensive materials. And so here we have the Bible telling us while, while painting a picture of wisdom, that it's okay to have some nice stuff. And this might be a departure for some people's view of the Bible. Some people think that like, unless you're living in dire straits and giving every dime away to charity, that you're not pleasing God. And that, that's not the whole picture. 
Like we see a wide variety of examples from the scriptures. Listen, we see plenty of wealthy people being commended and plenty of wealthy people being condemned. And we also see plenty of poor people being commended and poor people being condemned. And so there seems to be a a different matrix, a different baseline other than just money that, that brings either the praise or the condemnation of God. And that is how purely we can keep the priority of Christ in our lives, no matter your financial situation. So yes, in general, I think the overwhelming counsel of Scripture is that we, that we should be frugal, we should be careful with our money. But also, cheap doesn't always mean frugal. Like, you can be cheap on some stuff and end up spending a lot more in the end because it didn't last. So, so some people are always focusing on price, like getting the very cheapest thing. And some people are always focused on quality, like getting the very best thing. And I think some combination is in order. And let me say it this way. Maybe cheap on the stuff that doesn't matter that much, but quality on the stuff that does. Like if you're on your feet all day, get yourself a great pair of shoes. Like if you choose to never eat out and do all your cooking at home, get yourself some quality appliances and cookware. If you're driving a lot for a living, get a quality vehicle. Like those aren't the areas to cut corners. And listen, I think it's just generally okay to have some nice things. In fact, I would argue that God wants his children to enjoy nice things without feeling guilty. Listen to these passages. Ecclesiastes 5.19 says, Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. How about the New Testament? 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who, listen what God does, he richly provides us for everything for our enjoyment. Now, this has to be balanced, again, with what the Bible says about the dangers of riches, which vie for our heart's loyalties. God is jealous, and he wants our whole hearts. But the scripture does leave room for a difference in lifestyle. But it leaves no room whatsoever for materialism and greed and envy and pride and selfishness and hoarding and irresponsible spending and unjustifiable debt or, or indifference to the poor and marginalized. But God is also a God of abundance, not lack. He loves us. And I believe that he wants us to enjoy the good things he's blessed us with in this lifetime, guilt-free. So where do you draw the line when it comes to spending? I mean, there are certainly things that fall outside this list of the five areas from Proverbs 31. We didn't talk about entertainment choices. Notice that's not in there. We didn't talk about upgrades. We didn't talk about all the non-essential stuff that we spend money on. So I want to use the the last little part of this message here, talking about some questions that I think you can ask yourself before you spend money that will hopefully be clarifying on where to draw that line. There are no black and white lines. But these questions were inspired mainly from the writings of Randy Alcorn and and Joe Sengel. Remember, 100% of your money is God's. You're just the manager. And so these following questions and guidelines are designed to help you to exercise some self-control in spending, to become better stewards of God's resources, and to continue to free up funds for use for kingdom purposes. But here are the six questions to ask before you spend. The first is, have I prayed about it? So, So pray before you spend. When something is a legitimate need, God will provide it. How often do we take matters into our own hands and we spend money impulsively before asking God to furnish it for us in some other way? 
Sometimes waiting for God to answer our prayers eliminates most of our impulsive buying. Furthermore, the, the waiting period then gives God the opportunity either to provide what we want or to provide something different or maybe even better. Or maybe to show us that in fact we don't need that thing and we would better use our money some other way. That leads to the second question. Do I need it? And this sounds very basic, but as a spender, you and I can get caught up in the I want this moment. And we can never, sometimes we never stop to ask, do I need this? And for many of us, your, your garage and your basement and your attic and maybe that storage unit is full of I want this items that you've never actually used. And this is not to say that we can never purchase things that are pure wants. But when you ask this key question, you will make much smarter overall decisions. Do I need this? The third question is, can I pay cash for it? Please realize that nothing is a good deal if you can't afford it. So, so $150,000 might sound like an excellent price on a house that's worth $200,000, and $175 may seem like a great deal on, on, on barely used skis that normally cost $400 new, but if you can't afford them, neither of those things, like it doesn't matter what kind of deal it is. Nothing is worth going into financial bondage over. It's important to recognize that God isn't behind every good deal. But suppose you can afford to buy that terrific item. Does it mean that you should buy it? Well, not necessarily. Self-control is often turning down good deals on things that we really want because God may have other and better plans for his money. But paying cash is an important early filter. Fourth question, what is my motivation for wanting it? Is it a status purchase? Is it a pleasure purchase? Is it an impulse purchase? What's the motivation? Because advertisers earn master's degrees in persuading us to buy things we don't need. Advertising tells us you deserve that car. Like you won't be accepted unless you wear those clothes. You, you won't have fun unless you use my product. So we must consciously reject these claims and counter them with God's word, which tells us what we really do and don't need. And so, so we need to resist messages that foster greed or discontent. That, and that may mean less scrolling. It may mean less malls. It may mean less social media. It may mean limiting your visits to Amazon or Etsy or eBay. The fifth question, what are the long-term costs associated with this thing. So many purchases don't just consist of the short-term ticket price. They have invisible long-term costs that are coming down the road. So, so for example, even if you're given a free puppy, immediately you're spending money every week on dog food. You're paying for licenses, you're paying for tags, you're paying for toys and treats. You're paying $1,500 to the vet to deal with an abscessed tooth. So, so most purchases have hidden costs. You get a great deal on a jet ski, but then there's the trailer and there's the license and the gas and the winterization and the storage. And before you know it, you, you can be upside down on these things. So count the cost in advance. Almost everything ends up much more expensive than, than the ticket price at first. And here's the last question. Will it benefit God's kingdom? I think it's just so important for us to examine every purchase in light of its ministry potential. Every time you spend money, you, you gain something and you lose something. What you gain is that thing that you purchased. What you lose is not merely money, 
But, but what could have been done with that money if you had used it another way? And so when you spend $100, you have to weigh the value of that purchase against what the same amount of money could have done if invested in some kingdom need. So, so we should always have in our minds this sort of discernment scale. Is this more important than that? I think these questions will help us consider the spending opportunities that fall outside the advice from Proverbs 31. Now, let me just talk to a couple different groups about some next steps as I close today. Let's just say it plainly, okay? I said it at the beginning. Some of you have a problem in this area, and you know it. You could feel it in your chest the whole time I've been talking. We all have our thing. This happens to be yours. If that's you, can I challenge you to take a break from spending? Like, just cold, like, just shut it down. Go on a spending freeze for a minute. For, for some, some, it's actually moved into the category of sin for you. Like, you just buy too much, and you buy too often, and it's, it's wrong. And it's time for you to drop to your knees, to ask God's forgiveness for your self-indulgent approach to life, and for your indifference to the needs around you, and, and your short-sightedness about eternal issues, and for jeopardizing your family's long-term good because of your short-term indiscretions. And just repent before God, and shut it down for a while. Pay your bills, cover the essentials, but just issue a self-imposed spending freeze on all the other stuff. Now, there are others of you who, who maybe the approach is to, to put a limit on your spending or, or maybe a limit on your lifestyle is a better way to say it. This is a, a Randy Alcorn idea and I like it. He, he says, decide how much you're gonna live on and then just don't spend any more than that. Even if you make more than that, the point of this limit is just to, that, that, that you decide what we're living on, then you give away everything above that amount. So, so you make a predetermined amount of money, you determine what you'll save and what you'll invest, and that's it. You don't accumulate or spend any more than that. Instead of raising your standard of living, what if you started to raise your standard of giving? And there's others of you that, that maybe you're not at that level, but, but the thing that you can take away is to explore frugality. I have some friends who, who decided, for example, to go in together on some larger purchases for their home with, with their neighbors. They decided that they don't all need, you know, all the major garage tools. And so they just went in together and they bought one wheelbarrow and one skill saw and one lawn mower and one extension ladder. And they just share stuff. And it not only promotes frugality, it promotes neighborliness and community. And so in order to explore frugality, you're going to have to, you know, live below your means. So some of you are living beyond your means, and it's crippling. Some of you are living within your means. But I want to challenge us as a people. What, what would it look like to live below your means? Now, does being frugal mean that we can never splurge? Of course not. We, we certainly splurge at times in celebration of God's blessings. But but we have to guard against this. See, the tendency of our society is to consider financial splurges to be our rights. And soon those splurges become our routines. And when that happens, it's an enslaving lifestyle that we often can't afford. So, so we need to consider if a certain splurge really is God's blessing or not. Proverbs 10.22 tells us that the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. And so if our so-called blessing from God is bringing us financial debt and family stress and other sorrows, maybe it's not God's blessing at all. 
Exploring frugality and living below your means will allow a level of freedom and liberty that some of you have never experienced before. So as I said at the beginning of this series, my dream for us as a church is that we would each have hearts that are fully surrendered to God, untainted by debt and financial bondage and stress and strife relationally. Jesus saved us for freedom. So may we surrender every area of our hearts to him, including that financial area. Amen. I love you guys.